Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. A couple months ago, I sat down in the barn on Cheryl Crow's beautiful property on the outskirts of Nashville. The barn is also home to her recording studio, which is this uh, beautiful upstairs studio where actually Casey Musgraves came by and recorded her Grammy-winning album, so she lets other artists hang out in there. And Cheryl and I talked about her whole career, about the making of her new album, Threads, about the making of Tuesday Night Music Club and some of her other classic albums. And there's a lot to the interview, so let's get right to it. Thanks again for doing this. My pleasure. So you have like a really beautiful studio upstairs. It's one of those studios that you could call it a home studio, but I would just call it a, a studio. Quite a few people have recorded and just gotten away from you know, the eyes of the industry and come here and kind of worked things out and done writing sessions and stuff. It's a good vibe. Yeah, Casey Musgraves recorded her yes. amazing album there. Yeah. yeah. And I understand uh, there were some odors that were mysterious <laughs> to some members of your household. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she would mind my, uh, hopefully this isn't talking out of turn, I don't think she'd mind, but um, I mean, it was fantastic having her down here. And she really, you know, it's hard, it's hard to follow up the kind of success that she has had and not they have all those voices kind of leaning in saying, well, are you sure you want to do that? Because that doesn't sound like the last record. So she wanted to be off the beaten path. So this was a great situation for her. And so she invited me to come down and hear some stuff. And I had my two boys with me who are little. They're 9 and 12. But at the time, they were a year younger than that. And as we were leaving, my then 8-year-old said, Mom, it, sounds like, it smells like a skunk was in there. <laughs> and I mean, I wonder, is, is, do you think there's a skunk in the bar? And I was like... There was definitely a skunk, if not some skunk, in the barn tonight. <laughs> it's been clearly like a really great thing for you to, to have a studio. It's afforded you a freedom in your recording, it seems like. It's, it's really afforded me a freedom in my home life, being able to just walk down the driveway and also have my kids be able to come in and out and also be able to work the hours I want to work. There's another artist who has a bunch of horses on his property and a studio right next to it, and that's Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and I have to say, by the way, I've been in his home studio. I think yours is like this much nicer. Really? Yeah, like, just, you know, it's wow. close call. But, but uh, I mentioned it because you, you just played with him for what I believe is the very first time after yeah. all these years. Yeah. Not only that, but he was singing on, on one of your songs. Redemption Day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was really... Um, I was really touched that he asked me if I would do this um, gig. That's heroes. yeah, it's it's a gig that's near and dear to his heart. It was set up by Bob and um, Lynn Woodruff. You know, it's a it's a heavy occasion, and I was really proud. Or, I mean, I don't know. I, I I was touched that he asked me, and then I was even more touched that he wanted to sing on Redemption Day. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, he kind of took the. He's the uh, boss. Yeah, he took the yeah. Johnny Cash part from the from the record. Yes, kind he of. did. Yeah. Yeah. You see, both of you were really smiling at the end. So it's weird. It's, it's one of those you've, you've collaborated with everyone, but that's one that had that hadn't happened. Yeah, I never collaborated with him. And what's really funny is when I moved to New York, I got a loft in what then was like the Bowery. You know, I mean, it still is the Bowery, but um, you know, it was homeless shelters, and I mean, it back was then way it back really in the was day. The Bowery, yeah. Right, yeah. right. And I, of course, decided as soon as I moved in that I needed to also have a weekend home mm. out in New Jersey somewhere. Which is ridiculous, but um, and I didn't want to buy one. But Patty, Bruce's wife, was a dear friend, so I spent a lot of weekends out in Rumson with them at their farm, at that farm. Colts Neck, yeah. And you know, it's really interesting being around somebody like him. I would stay up 
I'm a little bit of a night owl, and Patty would go to bed early, and Bruce would stay up, and he would, I mean, he's just a fantastic storyteller. So to sit up and just tell stories and to listen to stories, it's such not only a beautiful art form, it is, I feel like there's something really metaphysical about discussing our own histories and where we find common ground and um, those things are so important. So, you know, I've not ever collaborated with him, but I do consider him to be such a, an incredible storyteller, but also big inspiration for yeah. me. You kind of made three debut records in a way, at least the way I was thinking about it, because you had your your first, which we've talked about before, that you always end up talking about, we won't drag it out, but the, you know, you had, a, you had an album that you made and, and discarded, and fortunately for you, the, the record industry was still cool enough at the time, you had a cool enough label that they actually let you do that instead of ruining your career. Yes. Um, you made Tuesday Night Music Club, and then you made Sheryl Crow. Right. And, you know, I mean... The, I like to do everything wrong <laughs> twice. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, I can't say that about Tuesday Night Music Club record. No. It was a fantastic record, and I'm grateful for that moment in time. I mean, I came out with a few bruises, but I think it's part of my story. How do you look back on that now, just the, all the, the, the back and forth? I mean, it was some of it, I have to say, looking back, seems pretty sexist, uh, especially in today's, look, looking at it through today's lens. Like, people were blaming you for all sorts of horrific things that really seemed completely out of your control. And I think the questions asked about the degree of your creative input probably wouldn't have been asked if you were if you were not a woman. No, and you know, it's interesting because um, there was so much written about how these guys wrote my record for me. And I, I think the the one thing was, once I got out from under it and could go in and make my own record, I mean, I'm, I feel blessed that the record did well. Otherwise, I would have just sunk into total, where is she now? But to be able to go in and make a record and be able to say, this is this is who I am, and... For all the naysayers, you'll either like me as this artist on this record, or you won't. And the unfortunate thing about it was I did accrue a big following of people that would never believe in me after that first record. They bought into the whole, um, somebody, she wasn't even in the room, Mm. you know. And there was a lot of really ugly stuff written about me, and a lot of, I mean, just a lot of stuff going around, you know, but I will say one thing, and that is when I look back on it and I look at the the credits and all that sort of stuff, everybody was credited and yeah. all the publishing splits were even. So everybody made a lot of money. And, and <laughs> We're this talking is, 90s money now. Yes, not, 90s know. money. I'm talking about 8 million copies of a record. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like grace goes a long way. And my challenge and exercise in having grace about it is my exercise in letting go. And that would have been a great lesson for the people involved in that record as well. But not everybody goes that route. It's funny, separately, I was was thinking about leaving Las Vegas, and and you were already a very accomplished and and professional singer, obviously. You had done professional backup singing for for two major tours, including a Michael Jackson tour that was like a unbelievably huge so you could sing however you wanted leaving Las Vegas is such a sophisticated vocal because you're kind of you're fully in character you can technically you could sing a million times better than you do on that recording but you're you're hitting that character so perfectly and I it just I I was thinking that that shows you know you weren't a kid you had enough experience and I had worked I'd had jobs and you know I, I think when you're an artist and you find the um courage to be okay with the vulnerabilities and actually dive into those vulnerabilities, particularly drinking helps that. 
that sometimes, um, I mean, it can certainly be a detriment, but can also sometimes help you get outside of the head that's telling you that things need to be perfect. Mm. I also had a producer, Bill Batral, who's a brilliant producer, who always thought that being able to sing really great was uninteresting. And so he would say, never use vibrato. Huh. You sound too pro. And and drinking, we drink a ton on that record. When, wow. I, when I think about... What would, what would you drink? <laughs> well, I mean, that particular night um, was the night I officially divorced tequila from my mm. life. But, um, <laughs> and the, what, what else, you know, when I, when I think about that record, not to spend too much time on it, but... Yeah. Um, you know, exhilarating to be around people who are highly intelligent and very artistic, but at the same time, we prided ourselves in being misunderstood and being misfits and that sort of thing. It was a hard record, you know? It was a hard record. Um, and that was part of it. You know, you bring to album making, you bring all of the good and the bad and the ugly. And that's what's beautiful about making albums. I mean, it's one of the reasons I don't want to do it anymore because I don't feel like when you get to a point where you show up and everything's pretty neat and tidy, that those albums necessarily fully illustrate who you are. Um, nobody's like that in real life. I mean, everybody walks around with their woundings, no matter how much therapy you've had or what antidepressants you take or whatever. Deep down, living and growing up and losing people and all those things are hard. Um, and it, it's not possible to walk into a studio and dive into all of that on the spot. Mm. And if you're a person who's raising children and that kind of thing, you can't just do it on command, you know? And a full body of work that gets into the hard places requires a lot, you know? It requires really facing a lot and, um, and so, yeah. I mean, this album for me, was about as emotional of a project I've ever made. So emotional, it's hard to talk about it sometimes. Threads, the new album, is uh, it's extraordinary, actually. And I've I've listened to it a lot. And it's one of the most ambitious albums you've ever made, I would say. So if you're going to go out, which I I feel like some part of you might might regret calling it your final album. Because now that becomes a thing you have to talk about again and again. And I I wonder if some part of you is like, oh. We were were talking about Kiss a while ago, about how they had their farewell tour and then they came back and did their final farewell tour and maybe I'll make my final final record but yeah <laughs> now I'm, I'll tell you the experience that I had with making the album that really was the moment where I felt okay this is this is something I don't want to follow up was the night I was singing in the studio trying to figure out how to sing with Johnny and I had recorded the song to a click with his vocal before I even asked the family about whether I could use his vocal. I had the demo. And so I recorded with him singing and just playing the piano. Never even wrote a note, just played along with him. And that's what it is. And when it was done, Steve, both of us were just like, and I kept it that way. And I told him, I said, I don't, I don't want to sing on it. I just want it to be like it is. I don't want to hear me on it. I just want, I want, I want him. This is perfect the way it is. And he's like, well, you just have to sing on it. It's not the Johnny Cash record. You have to sing on it. And so we got permission from his family. And then I, several times I went in and took different hitches at it. But one night I was in the studio and it was late. My kids were already in bed. And I was in there by myself and I just felt his presence. And I do think there's a a very thin veil between 
all the spiritual realms, you know. And I just felt the weight and breadth and profundity of him singing those words at this moment. And um, I sang along with him, and I found my place in it. And when I was done, I called Steve and said, I don't, that, I want this to be the last. I don't even want to hear myself sing after this. Wow. I want this to be the beginning, the middle, and the end. Whether it is or not, you know, I, I think I'll feel comfortable making records as I, or not records, but putting out songs and we as I feel I have something to say that isn't just noise with all the other noise. There is a train that's heading straight to heaven's gate. To heaven's gate. When you originally wrote that song, I believe that it came in kind of a real burst. It did. Yeah. I came home from um, a USO tour playing for the troops in Bosnia and had flown over Tuzla and um, I mean, I'd seen I saw a lot over there that I'd never been exposed to in my life. I grew up as a kid with Vietnam um, young military guys and I guess some women, but mostly young men coming home in body bags and their names scrolling. Every night, six o'clock news, Walter Cronkite in 1968, 69. I, and I remember it sitting at the dinner table and watching the news and seeing the names and wearing, I wore Ben Cartwright, my POW bracelet, but I'd never seen anything like it. You know, we don't, we see stuff on the news and it doesn't, you know, it's so, we're so desensitized now, but I came home and at the same time in my life, my relationship I'd been engaged was falling apart. So I was really gutted about that, and I sat down to really write a heartfelt song about that because he'd been on the trip with me. And I just kept thinking about everything that was on the news at that time, which was Rwanda. And so it just kept coming up, and I finally was just like, oh, forget it. I put my guitar down, and I went to my computer and just started writing. And the whole song, stands after stands after stands after stands, that came out in kind of like this Bob Dylan cadence, which I don't usually, I mean, obviously people who know my music, you don't hear a lot of, that kind of cadence work. And that was the song. And it was so timely. And I did record it. And I felt like it was really important to that moment in time. And then many years later, after June passed away, Johnny recorded it sort of as his answer to us being involved in the Middle East again. And he was very outspoken about it, as he was outspoken about his disagreement with us being in Vietnam and all the things that he stood up for. So... I think the timing of it now and our relationship to truth and our relationship to our reverence for our public servants, our irreverence, um, and just what we sort of amplify or model to our kids being so diametrically opposed to what it means to be empathetic and compassionate and accepting of others. Uh, to hear Johnny, you know, knowing who he was, sing those words was just, you know, it's still... It, you know, I hear it, and it makes me just really hold back the emotion. Yeah, the song feels kind of like a, a standard now. Like it stands outside even your catalog when, when I hear you. you play it. Yeah. The songs came from a bunch of different places on, on this album. One, one of them um, we, we talked briefly about before, but this fascinates me, uh, is, is this uh, diner musical mm. that you wrote. That was another thing where you kind of wrote some songs in, in huge bursts. What was that like? Yeah, you know, I grew up as a kid, as I said, no cable and stuff, and movies. You know, movies were huge. And what was on 
our general ABC, NBC, CBS, those kinds of movies, sometimes at night they would show, or on weekends they would show musicals. And I loved musicals, you know, Oklahoma West Side Story was a huge favorite, Brigadoon, um, you know, anything with singing and dancing. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say it. I love musicals. So when Barry Levinson called me a few years ago, he said, I want to take Diner, this cult classic from the 80s, and turn it into a musical. And um, at, at first, I, I just couldn't figure out. I was like, I don't really, how are you going to turn it into a musical? Nothing happens. It's a lot of dialogue, <laughs> really smart dialogue, right. very funny, no, very you're right. quick. It's, it's a, but it's nothing happens. They hang out. It's yeah. a lot of hanging out. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, Where's, where are you going to put the intermission? Yeah. And there, the female roles in it were basically... You know, they were kind of screens. They weren't really, they had no, no real presence. The women were like prizes to be won exactly. or to be discussed by the men. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so we had numerous conversations about it and, and, but nothing to work from. So I finally called the producer and said, look, I can't do this. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And with just a script, I don't even know where to put the songs in. And he said, Oh, you didn't get an outline. I was like, no. And so he sent me the outline and that night I wrote five songs. Wow. And. Sometimes I think when you really struggle at something, your ego is involved. I got to make this great. I want to create themes. It's got to be as great as West Side Story. You know, out of all that frustration came this great release of going, Oh, okay. Now I know what I'm doing. Let's go to work. And it was great being able to tap into and also in some ways create a voice for the women and who they represented at that moment in time. It's really interesting being in the Me Too movement now because that movie really speaks to all the sexism. And how far we've come, but it also, in some ways, I think, it, it is a kind of screaming, realistic depiction of how far we also haven't come. Yeah. Um. So it was it was great fun to work on. But the the song in the uh, in Threads is a woman who's gotten pregnant, but she still wants to be in the working world, and doesn't want to have to fall into the what's expected of you when you're pregnant. You should get married. You're not going to work. It's you know the late fifties, entering the sixties. You need to stay home you know, cook for the man, clean the house. And she's saying, no, I, I can be more. And so that's, um, but Steve, my producer said that that was the song that made him want to do the whole record. Mm. So don't, right? Don't. Yeah. yeah. Don't. It's a great song. And it has, it's, it has a real kind of like girl groupy burp. Bacharach, Dan Warwick, kind of, it just, it seems to come from, until I realized it was from the Diner Musical, I said, I literally said, where did this come from? Because it's wild. It's a whole different yeah. feel. Yeah. And he's, uh, the, the song is written from the standpoint of a woman who's, who's really the metaphor for the sixties when women threw off all that, those expectations and said, no, we are people and we can work and have children and do all the things that we know we can do. And so I got to dip my toe into, from out of the 50s kind of genre, I got to dip my toe into the 60s. And once I finished the song, I sent it to Burt Bacharach and said, ah, I well. just want you to know, I love your dirty socks. So <laughs> and he he called me and said, I love it. It's great. So it's, it's really cool. Did you model it after specific Bacharach things? Because it's just everything, the chords, everything is kind of out of, moves to the left of where I think of a lot of your, right. your stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, anyone who had a heart, uh, walk on by. Um, all those songs had those classic um, jazz chords, but more interestingly, were the fact that his his melodies were so memorable that you weren't even aware of how sophisticated the chords were. And 
I grew up in a household where music was played all the time and records were always being played. And my parents were always playing with their friends and staying up late at night. And there was just always music. And so Burt Backrack was a, was a big favorite. Mm. Your parents were in a, a swing band. They my both parents were? were in a swing band. Yeah. Yeah. And they would come home after their gigs. And I mean, they weren't, you know, they were just playing around, uh, local areas and stuff, but the band was great. They read charts and they, you know, they, they were great. And we would lay on the stairs on the other side of the living room wall because we wanted to hear them playing down there and partying and listening to music and dancing. And they, you know, you got to go back to bed and <laughs> on the other side of the wall. We don't want to miss it. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of an idyllic way to grow up. But when you're a kid, you don't realize that not everybody else is growing up that way. You right. just assume that everybody's household is doing that very thing. Right. Drinking, smoking, playing records, dancing. I mean, they were young. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. Their late twenties, early thirties, you know, even, you know, all the way through their forties. And your mom was a piano teacher. Mom was a piano teacher. My dad was a lawyer. And she actually, she taught you piano? No. No. No, okay. she wouldn't teach us. She's like, that is one battle I do not want. And she's a great teacher, but you know, I think there's something really nice about having somebody else teach your kids so you don't have that ongoing argument. Was that your first instrument? Yes. That's my first in- instrument. And I think there was there was some story I think where your your sister said that there was a lot of expectation that you would be home practicing piano every day. Was oh that- yeah, we we had to practice every day, at least for thirty minutes. And we, my mom taught a um, I can't remember the name of the the style of teaching that she did, but she had a music a piano studio where there were four pianos in a room. Hmm. And so we would all be practicing. Like there'd be at least two of us practicing at a time. One in the studio and then one in the living room. And my mom was standing in the kitchen, that's a B flat, you know, and she'd always yell at me, that's not your lesson. That's James Taylor. Um, and I could play by ear. So that was sort of the demise of my classical training. And you learned everything else by ear guitar or did you ever have, did you ever guitar lessons? Never. So you obviously have a really good ear. I do have a good ear. I mean, I have a good enough ear that unfortunately I I wish I would have taken lessons. You know, I wish I would have really learned all the, you know, the proper techniques and, but I get around and I think in some ways when you aren't schooled, um, you find your own, your own feel. And, you know, while I'll play bass on my demos and while I'm writing, when I bring somebody else in to replace it, it doesn't feel the same. So then I wind up just keeping it, but I wish I was better than I am, but. I am what I am. But you don't, you, yeah, but you don't have that urge to like show off. I mean, Kid Rock, who you collaborated with, it used to do a thing where he like went around the stage and showed that he could play all the instruments. I mean, you can play a lot of the instruments, but you, I don't know if it's like a male female thing or just a personality thing, but you don't, you, you're not really showing off of them. It's always a tool to deliver. I was song. always more into the words, you know, yeah. playing instruments was a means for me to get my ideas down. And I started playing bass when I just got sick of, the way I was writing, I would write, you know, if I wrote on piano, there were certain chords and certain progressions that felt natural. And then I would write melodies to that. And you can't just rewrite the same song over and over. And the same with guitar, you know, when you're limited or when you're just used to certain things that feel or sound right, you, you don't write great melodies, you write melodies to the progressions. And so then I decided, you know, I'm going to write on bass cause I can still get the rhythm, but I've got to play the notes on the bass to just outline what should work with the melody. And it's really been a great way for me to write. I started doing that on 
Globe Sessions. Globe Sessions. You, you made the cover of Bass Player Magazine, so... You, Which you know, is yeah. a little embarrassing, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. I've had to apologize to quite a few bass players, <laughs> Gail Ann Dorsey included. I'm like, I don't belong on it. They just put me on it. I don't know. I don't know. Another way to look at it is like you're like Prince. You're a multi-instrumentalist. Who can- Prince was a genius on everything he touched. I mean, actually more so than any musician I have ever played with. I mean, the guy was stupefying. But yeah, always on the play. I was on the cover. <laughs> yeah, what was your Prince experience like? I mean, it was amazing. It was like stepping into a whole different intergalactic plane. I mean, he just lived, breathed, and ate music. Everything in his life revolved around that. And I mean, there's something really heady about being in his company because, you know, he hangs out with people that he feels like can hold their own. So, I mean, just to be invited into the inner circle and to be hanging out with him at Paisley Park and to record with him and then to go play with him in a couple of different places. Amazing. And you know, it's, I always say it's like playing tennis with John McEnroe. If you're a pretty good player and you got there with him, you find that, wow, I'm actually a little bit better than I thought I was. He's making me up my game. I still can't beat him, but you know, it makes you, you know, it, it, it challenges your level. And with Prince, that's, you know, that's, that's definitely what my, my relationship was like with him. Um, he was super funny, obviously brilliant and smart. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I would have stayed in touch with him through the years. Not that I could have done anything, but we kind of parted ways. We had a disagreement about doing a TV thing. And, you know, I, I wish I would have reached out to him. Um, not that we were on bad terms. I just had kind of lost touch with him, but you know, I want to ask you about growing up with the stones because they're one of your biggest influences, if not possibly your single biggest influence at some points. And yet some of the lyrics are very much from like a dude perspective and they've, they've faced accusations of, you know, <laughs> of pushing a little far in that, in that direction over the years. So how did you see yourself in relationship to kind of like mixed lyrics and in, in relationship to the, that whole band that, that oh, allowed yeah. you to be I a I mean, they were, they were not allowed in my house. <laughs> I, I didn't get to listen to the Rolling Stones, and probably f- mostly for that very reason. I also think my parents thought it was racket. You know, they would talk about how, ugh, Bob Dylan, worst singer ever. We never listened to Dylan, and we never listened to the Rolling Stones. And I was aware, especially when I got into college. I mean, I was playing their their stuff in cover bands in high school. But when I got into college and was in a cover band, and we were doing a lot of that stuff that, you know, it's pretty sexist. <laughs> You didn't really think about it that much because you were just covering it, you know, and I was the keyboard player. And, you know, as I've gotten older, it does leave a little bit of a, you would never say that now. I mean, there are things now we always laugh at, you'd never say that now, you know, and it was a different time. It was, um, they wrote the book, you know, they were the inventors of the rock star persona and the women that boarded that train with them, you know, and... But yeah, they were very influential on me because for one thing, they took the music that I grew up hearing and they made it, for me, understandable. You know, I didn't love country music when I was growing up. And they took the music that I was, you know, that was fully my musical environment in my hometown, all the country music and music I'd grown up with in that area, the Delta and all. And they made it, they made it rock. They made, they made, I could understand it. It was like something about it resonated with me and I wanted to be Keith I didn't ever want to be Mick mm. but I wanted to be Keith and Charlie 
I, I wanted to be one of the guys. You know, that was one of the things that made me gra gravitate to, to Stevie is that even though she was a female, same with um, Linda Ronstadt, same with Emmy. Yeah. They held their own with the guys. And that's because I grew up at a time where there weren't that many female side musicians. You could either hang with the guys or you couldn't. And right. so, you know, you became one of the guys. There was nothing taboo, you know. You know, I lived that life. Uh, speaking of the Stones, you have uh, Keith Richards on this album. And and speaking of gender relations in Stones lyrics, you brilliantly kind of flipped this song, The Worst. It's much more expected from... Uh, from him. A, from him, yeah. yeah. I mean, you it's expect song, him yeah. at, this, at this moment in his evolution... You can expect him saying, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just that guy. I'm gonna fuck up, you know? But that relationship to that emotion is not all relegated to just guys. I mean, don't we all feel that way sometimes? And that, to me, was just such a great country song. I mean, talk about a great Tanya Tucker song. I mean, if you ever had a moment when you look back and thought, I've done some really bad shit, <laughs> and I'm that dude, and I'm sorry, that's, that's me. Um, but at least, at least you see that and you still love me. And I wanted to sing that song and I didn't want to do it with anybody else. Well, I said from the first, I am the worst kind of You went to New York and spent a couple days with him, right? I did. And you know, what's really crazy is um, he's one of the very first people really to put his arm around me. And I mean that. Metaphorically, I mean, he, he, and, and physically as well. But I mean, when I went down, one of the very first high profile gigs I got invited to do was on my first tour. And we were in Amsterdam, and the Stones invited me to come play with them on their pay per view, just come out and sing a song with them. And he really embraced me. I mean, from that moment, he always called me little sister. And through the years, we've maintained a friendship, we've written together, we've done stuff together. He's shown up to club gigs I've done and sat in, and he's just, been an incredible member of my musical clan. But what's really interesting about it was that as a young school teacher, I was in the audience in yes. St. Louis for, watching for Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, right? Watching yeah. the taping of Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, yeah. um, which was kind of his baby. And I got to be there to watch all the shenanigans. And Steve Jordan, my producer, was the drummer. And there's so many threads on the record that are physical threads that wind back through the in, the events of my life that have just, you know, gone off like light bulbs while making this record. The fact that, you know, being in the studio with, with Keith, I remembered, oh my heavens, would I have ever thought as a 23-year-old that I would be standing in this room? Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were a school teacher at the time. I was a school teacher in St. Louis. I was a kid from... A town of three stoplights, you know, 27 miles from a freeway and uh, two hours from a city. And just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you, you read about or some kid reads about and goes, I, I can do that. I, maybe it can happen for me. And it doesn't happen for everybody, but it does happen. You were talking about getting women, you know, sort of in the studio. One of the things that I think was key in your kind of career story is you were talking about the, the producer of Tuesday Night Music Club, and he was going to produce Sheryl Crow, mm -hmm. but I guess you guys got, got in like an we argument. We got crossways yeah. on the first day. Yeah. Um, well, just to lead, leading into this, I mean, what exactly, how did it go so south so fast on that record? I actually don't know. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that 
I don't think it was that it went south. I think it's that we decided that we would go, we would get out of LA to make the record because we'd sold 8 million, co- million copies and there was quite a lot of pressure. There was also some bad juju. And we got down to New Orleans and while the pamphlet for the studio was amazing, very artistic <laughs> with naked women on it and all this incredible vintage gear, nothing worked. And so that was a very big source of frustration. And what's really interesting about it, the woman that met us there, who was under the board like a mechanic, soldering from underneath the board, she you know rolls out literally on a dolly and um, snapped at Bill and said, would you please not put your drink on the board? And so he, from the get-go, was just like hmm. hating on this. Well, that is the woman that wound up um, working with me on my next two records and who I fully credit with my next really three records I I fully credit her with helping me find myself and you know I will never overestimate the power of serendipity things coming together the way they're supposed to Um, yeah he he was just frustrated I think there was a lot of pressure to finish it I think he didn't really want to be there Um, had some wine that night (laughs) and just got he got sideways and when I woke up the next day, he was not there anymore. So I can't even tell you what, what happened right. or if something did happen. But but you ended up basically producing yourself and with, with that engineer. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was great. I mean, it was sort of like, in a weird way, having him leave forced me to man up or woman up and to really dig deep and, and find, figure out who I wanted to be artistically. And it was great. I mean, you were, you were talking about Casey's pressure. I mean, that was definitely one of the times in, in your career that you had unimaginable amounts of pressure on you and, you, and you came through and, like, made the whole rest of your career, I think, arguably. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, there, were, there, was a, there was a huge spectrum of emotions that went along with that record, one of being burnt out and two of being misunderstood and highly, well, highly misunderstood and very underestimated, um, but also euphoric. The euphoria of feeling like, well, nobody believes I can do anything anyway. So I'm going to do what I want to do. And if it sucks, I'll get a producer and I'll start over. And because there was that sort of kids in a candy store or manic scientist in a, in a laboratory with nobody looking in, I could kind of just... Figure it out as I went, you know. And my manager was brilliant about it. You know, we've been together, you know, since before that, which is 30 years. And he said, you know, you've always demoed your music well before Tuesday Music Club. Just do it yourself. And we'll put it out. When the chorus of If It Makes You Happy came to you, you must have realized you, <laughs> you really had something. Yeah, and I will tell you, um, I'll tell you the story of that. Jeff Trott, who's been my co-writer really since that time, co-writer on most of my songs, particularly the ones that have made money. I feel like we're sort of like Goffin and King or like Lennon and McCartney. Like we bring to each other a yin and a yang, and sometimes I'm the yang and he's the yin, and sometimes I'm the yin and he's the yang, you know? And, but he brought that chorus in over frustration with what was going on in his own home life. Mm. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, this 
for me, is saying what I feel like is clearly obvious. It just was a song that had meaning for both of us on, in different ways, on different levels. And um, because the air conditioning didn't work where we were working, <laughs> all of our neighbors enjoyed that song <laughs> for many, um, many nights, many late nights while we were recording it. I think even at that time, I know later you experienced something you might more directly call depression, but it's reading interviews with you at that time, it sounds like you were experiencing some something that was something like depression at that time. I don't know if that oh, matches yeah. your memory. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I think um I think part of my chemical and genetic makeup is extreme highs and extreme lows. Part of my um my challenge in life has been to learn how to manage that. Yeah. And um, you don't come by it without looking at it. And there's a lot of ways to not look at it. And I'd gotten really good at that. Mm. You know, when I came home from the Michael Jackson tour, 18 months, I went through a really bad, really bad depression. And my mom finally came out, showed up, and made me get out of bed. You don't want that. You know, you just don't want your mom to show up when your whole life has been about making sure everybody thinks that you're perfect and great. And, you know, it's just, we're all made differently. And if we are, if we're really honest with ourselves and we really allow ourselves to experience all the facets of life and all the emotions that go along with it, it's hard yeah. sometimes. And meditation has been really, has been really helpful for me. You know, um, I have... I've done therapy. You know, I still find that to, I need to get somebody now. I'm going to be great. But I do find that it is necessary to just find an objective person who has some sort of sense of what, because we all suffer the same emotions. I mean, there's loss. There's, there's you know, there's grief. There's sadness. No matter what the story is behind it, whatever the backstory is, um, we all have wounding, and we have to figure out our way through it and out the other side to function as a, you know, as a productive human being and also to find joy and to not feel guilty about feeling joy. Yeah. You know, as an artist, part of you doesn't want to be joyful because you think you'll never write a great song again. And you want to be tortured. Wow. And, yeah. you know, I just finally had to grapple with the fact that wasn't my... That wasn't my story. That was my mythology, but it wasn't my story. I mean, it was some of the Michael Jackson tour post-depression. I mean, I can imagine a few things. First of all, you went from literally being on stadium stages to wait, back to waitressing, mm-hmm. which is like a real kick in the head. Um, and I also, you know, you, you, you also had some encounters with like the realities of the record business, including, as you sang about, some kind of inappropriate something from De- oh, straight De- up, DeLeo. Yeah. Straight up sexual harassment or De- harassment, whichever. <laughs> yeah, um, there was a very, it, I, I think there, there was a lot of pressure on me when I came off that tour to take the exposure of that and run with it. Mm. And so my sense of failure of having to go back to waiting tables, I just felt like I had messed everything up. And part of it was because I didn't want to make the kind of music that was expected. You right. know, it was all... Madonna at the time and Paula Abdul and Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam and Jody Watley and I mean you can kind of understand from that picture what music was and I that I had no relationship to that kind of music even though I've been singing R&B pop every night in front of 75,000 people a night and was in all the tabloids and was in all the magazines I went I came home 
I went to every record label and, you know, played my music and had everybody say, we don't know what to do with that. That's, that's like blue-eyed soul country. We, nobody's playing that on radio. And right. I went home to total silence and I went back to waitressing. And I felt like I had, I had missed the bus and it was my fault. And so there was a lot of that. And then there was also the fact that for the better part of a year, I'd had this Svengali sexually harassing me, you know, promising me that he could get my song into the top 10. Mm. But he would take half my publishing. Um, I mean, there was a whole, you know, it's, it is the, the, the most horrific experience you'll have and unfortunately it just happens all the time you know and it still happens and the part of it that is disheartening is that as a young artist if you believe in yourself and you feel like you have something or you feel like I can't do anything other than this I need to do it as part of my need um, you, you sometimes you feel like when somebody's dangling a carrot in front of you and making you promises you feel like it's your fault mm. If you don't make it, and if you don't grab that carrot, yeah, it was really troubling. And then when I went to actually get somebody to represent me, a lawyer, because I felt like I was in so deep, and I was, I was getting threats at that point that I would never work again. Oh man! The lawyer told me, you know, a lot of people would be really grateful to be in the position you're in. That's your lawyer. That was the <laughs> lawyer that I'd hired. Very yeah. high-powered attorney. And so I came away from it feeling like I was not only a big nothing, but that it was my fault. So, and this is the story, you know, this is the story why people don't come forward. It's the story of how you feel. Um, and looking back on that, um, you know, it, it forever changed my, it changed my relationship to how I felt about the music business, which made me sad. Yeah. That I came into it thinking, you know, with a good Puritan work ethic I was raised with, that if you really work hard and you're a good person, that you'll make it. Yeah. Well, I found out that's not really how people make it a lot of times. Yeah. And I found out how the record music, how the business worked. Back then, I learned all about payola. I learned about the sexual favors. I learned about all of it. And I came away from it going, do I even want to be a right. part of that? Um, but what else will I do? It's the only thing I've done since I've been a you know, five-year-old. So it was interesting so, and transformative. Yeah. That's definitely what they call a situational depression in the sense that yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, it, and it was situational, but I also, I met myself in therapy, you know. I had to really face the guilt that I couldn't make everybody happy with me and I couldn't please everybody, you know. And that's been, that has been my challenge throughout my, I think, my own personal evolution. One thing you've definitely had a lot of time to contemplate, again, having announced your final album is, is just what the rest of your career is going to feel like. And it feels like, just talking a few times, it, it seems like it feels like freedom. It, it seems like you feel kind of liberated. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, um, well, certainly I experienced some liberation after I completed cancer treatment and went on the road. And I felt like it was the first time I actually felt like I was in my body and that I wanted to connect with people, hmm. you know, through our mind's eyes. I wanted to see people. I didn't want the lights down. And it was such a strange, after years of touring and wanting the, you know, the lights to be down so I could have this respite, I wanted to actually see people and connect. And so, but the thing that's been most liberating is being my age. And, 
you know, when I turned 40, all the girls on the radio were like 17, like Britney right. and... At best, yeah. Yes, yeah. and Christina Aguilera. Yeah. And I mean, really young and highly successful. And I'm turning 40, which is like, it symbolizes like the end of your childbearing years. And, you know, you should be a mom and have a family and uh, and you're getting old and you're never going to play the radio again. And all these crazy emotions, like I was feeling like I'm going to be put out to pasture. Mm. Um, as I've gotten older, um, I mean, I did have success after that. I mean, so yeah. the sun came out. and But nonetheless, getting older has been liberating for me on a number of levels. It's, you know, I've had to actually make big decisions about how much I'm going to accept myself. Hmm. You know, am I going to allow myself to age in the public um, view? Or am I going to get my face worked on? Um, Am I going to be okay with not competing with the young pop stars? And what I found was that the liberation of being able to speak my truth and knowing that I'm never going to compete with getting a radio that that radio for me doesn't exist anymore, that my songs don't even cater to the six-second attention span, that there's liberation in that, you know, and that your, you know, your songs will find their way. You know, it's all playlists and streaming and all that sort of thing and the algorithms, but they're still necessary. And people like Jason Isabel and Brandy, and I mean, we write songs and we don't do it because we think it's going to make us money. We do it because it's a necessary avenue out and that there are people that still want to hear songs and they want to hear, they want to feel something. And it's necessary. You know, there will always be room for singer-songwriters, whether they get played at radio or don't. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. That was me and Cheryl Crow. And that will be today's show. We'll see you next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.